begin Kabbalah and coffee. Recording in progress. Okay, so today's topic is do angels have bodies? Do angels have bodies? That's, okay, I, I will tell you that's one of the topics we're going to talk about today. Um, but I think it's an interesting angle on this. So first of all, what is an angel? I think many of us picture angels the way angels are depicted in popular media. Sometimes you see an angel depicted as um, a fluffy, like, um, how would you depict angels? Like a fluffy white creature with wings, right? Like a cherubim. Yeah, yeah, like a cherubim, like yeah, cherubim type thing. Uh, right, yeah, like a, yeah, so, like a white, fluffy thing with wings, Michael Landon, maybe, Michael Landon, was Michael Landon an angel in some sort of something, was that, yeah, I think so, anyway, there's various ways in which we depict angels, or imagine angels to be, um, which may or may not be at all accurate, the Torah tells us various instances of angels assuming human form, but that doesn't mean certainly that angels have human <laughs> angle on angel, yes. That doesn't mean that angels have a human form. There are instances in Torah where angels are described as having kind of taken on a, a bit of a human, uh, a human mission. So for example, we have the three angels that appear to Avraham, three angels that appear to Abraham, and these angels are... Um, these angels are interacting with him. He's feeding them. They're pretending to eat. And it's a whole situation. And they look like human beings, allegedly. So this is angels. These are angels taking on human form. You have also another instance of this where Yaakov, Jacob, wrestles with an angel. All night he's wrestling with an angel. Well, what did, what did he wrestle with? Did he wrestle with some sort of spiritual entity and some sort of like um, energy entity or was it some physical thing that you could feel? You know, they're talking about the metaverse now. You guys know about this metaverse? Ed, did you introduce me to the metaverse? No, it wasn't me. It wasn't you? Yeah. Are you sure? I'm positive. Huh. Facebook. So, well, Facebook now changed your name to meta and now they're claiming they invented the metaverse. <laughs> it's like, bro, it didn't happen, huh? What is it? No, I was just saying about the Spider-Man movie a couple years ago. Yeah. Welcome to the metaverse. Welcome to, oh, I didn't know that. It was. Yeah, there was like multiple universes. So. Well, so yeah, so this whole metaverse thing is like, okay, you can exist as a virtual um, version of yourself. So like there's the real version of you, which I'm assuming you know, right? I mean, you know what that is. But then you can have this virtual version of yourself that can exist in a virtual space. So, and it's like this whole thing where you can interact then with other, you as a virtual being, can act with other virtual beings and have all these virtual experiences in a virtual space. Sounds great. Sounds like a great way to spend a Sunday afternoon, especially when it's raining. But I mean, it's, look, it's, it's what's going on and it's happening and whatever. People are getting in on this, on this stuff. And I don't know. I don't know, I don't know where the, all this leads us, but here's what I do know, that they are now inventing, I believe Facebook, is applying for patents or applied for patents or some sort of technology leaked where they're trying to create these gloves, these gloves that you would wear that have various pressure, the ability to create pressure through air expanding, where in this metaverse, if you touch something, you can actually feel it and it feels like you're actually touching something. Are you with me? So you would wear like a headset, 
you guys with me on this? You would wear a headset and be in this virtual space, in this realm, and, but you could use your hands, and that just creates more of a real experience in this completely not real, well, I mean, who defines reality? Join us Tuesday for Call of the Matrix, but whatever, like in this, in this virtual space to have this type of, to have this type of, uh, of sensations, tactile sensations. Are you guys with me on this? Yeah, is this kind of making sense? All right, so my point is, uh, pursuant to this, my point is, um, you know, is it that the angel that Yaakov, that Jacob wrestled with, was like a physical body, or was it kind of like a virtual reality that, that he was able to somehow sense without putting on the Facebook gloves or whatever it is? I don't know. But he wrestled with an angel, which means that on some level the angel assumes human form. There are other angels in Torah, um, even if not specified. Yaakov sends angels. Yaakov has a dream to, to check out, um, to ascertain whether his brother Esau wants to harm him still. Um, Yaakov, Jake, Jacob has a lot of angels around his story. Yaakov has a dream with angels going up and down the ladder. And there are two other angels that, are, that I want to mention right now. And these are the fallen angels known as the Nephilim. At the time of the human corruption, before the flood, before God destroys the world with the flood, so the angels, there were two angels on high that said to God, you know, you send us down there, we're going to fix up the mess. You know, human beings are, are too weak. They're too, they're too um, yeah, they're too weak. But if you send us there, we can clean up the mess. So God says, you think you can? Yeah. So he sent them down, and, the, and according to our tradition, these angels went so low, they became the most corrupt of all beings, and they were the fathers of, they, they did terrible things, and they fathered angels, uh, sorry, they fathered, sorry, they were angels, fallen angels, that, that assumed human form, and they fathered giants that ultimately were also part of this corruption. Like, the t terrible corruption, I'm not going to get into the details, um, but these were fall, fallen angels. So we have various instances throughout Torah and throughout rabbinic literature of angels assuming somewhat human form on some level. The question, though, is angels not assuming human form. Angels in their natural habitat, let's call that. Their natural habitat in the higher supernal realms in heaven, whatever, wherever that is, whatever that looks like, the question is what do angels look like over there in their home, on their home turf? So do angels, can you see an angel? Can you sense an angel? What is an angel? So on a very basic level, angels are what we might call packets of divine energy. They are divine energy that are, that are typically sent on a mission, kind of like a packet of, of information, a packet of data. You know, when you're uploading or downloading, it's sent in packets. I mean, we don't think of it in terms of packets because it used to be back in the day when you downloaded something, you could see the download bar, right? Download, 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 download. Today, nowadays, with, uh, with all of the wonderful speeds, most things I believe that people are downloading, unless you're torrenting and whatever, and that's a whole other uh, conversation, right? But like most things you're downloading, typically, unless it's like crazy, hot, crazy big files, pretty much instant. So you don't even notice that it's coming in packets because the whole thing kind of uh, happens pretty quickly. But packets are like packets, chunks of data, chunks of information that are moving either this way or that way through a space. And angels, in somewhat of a similar way, are also in this, in this type of uh, model where they're 
packets of spaces of divine energy or, or sections of divine energy moving through space, moving through a, a space, either one way or another way, typically for a very specific mission. So, and I've said this many, we've said, talked about this many times before, when we pray, we actually create angels, or more precisely, well, sorry, it says that when we pray, angels take our prayers above, or more precisely, we create angels, in a sense, we create a flow of energy that originates down here and ascends above. Likewise, when blessings come from above to below, it likewise uh, um, assumes the form of packets of blessing, packets of divine energy that are moving through a space from above to below. So we could term any of these forms angels. The question, though, is, the question on the table is, do angels have bodies? Now, angels could assume bodies, like we've talked about this morning, but do angels themselves have bodies? So there, there's an interesting answer in Kabbalah, which we'll get to today, and the answer is yes. Angels have bodies, but not the type of bodies that you and I know as a body. You see, everything is relative. Relative to the soul of an angel, to the spirit of an angel, there is a, another part of the angel that is termed a body. Although it's not like a physical body, just like we have body and soul, which could also be loosely termed the Kabbalah R and Kali, light and vessel, Right? There's the light, the soul, the energy, and then there's the vessel, the container, which is the body that contains the life of the soul, the light and life and the energy of the soul. The same thing is true with angels. Angels have a light dimension, they have an energy dimension, and they also have a body vessel dimension to them. Even though, it does not, even though it's not visible to the human eye, unless they assume human form, even though it's not tangible to human touch, it may not be sensed by human senses, but there is a body to angels as well, which is what we're going to get into in today's text. Actually, today's text is very evocative. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of really rich conversation in today's text. I think I want to kind of jump in pretty much right away. We usually do a bit, a, bit, a bit of a longer intro, but I feel like I want to jump into the text because in this text, we're going to talk about angels. We're going to talk about human beings. We'll talk about all of creation, all of existence, and the ultimate objective that we're going to get to this week and over the next several weeks, the ultimate place that we want to hone in on is what distinguishes the human being from all other forms of life, including angels? What distinguishes human beings from everything else? Why are human beings called in Jewish teachings, Bechir Hanavraim, which is the chosen of existence, the chosen of creation? Human beings, generally speaking, the human, the human being is considered to be the the chosen being of all, of all creation. Why is that? How is that? What does that mean for us? These are some of the topics that we're going to cover. But one more element of intro, is just so we, have, we understand why we're talking about all of this. Angels and humans and heaven and earth and what distinguishes humans from angels and other, other forms of life is to understand what book we're covering. This book is called Overcoming Folly. And Overcoming Folly is all about understanding what it is that makes us make poor decisions. Why is it that we make such poor de decisions in, uh, so often in our lives? What is it that drives negative behavior? And what is it that allows us to um, justify our negative behavior? So this text covers various forms of what we call folly. The book is called Overcoming Folly, which is uh, folly would be in Hebrew, shtus, 
The question is, what are the shtuyot? What are the follies that we are trying to overcome? And what gets us into the trouble and what, what can get us out of the trouble? So what I want to do is talk about various forms of folly that we've covered thus far in this text. So folly number one that we covered in this book, and we've been studying this for a little while. I think we're at maybe 40-something classes, so, which means that it's been about a year. Almost a year, 20 December. December 12, oh, December 20. Yes. Oh, look at that, today's December 19th. So yeah, I, I ran the math in my head quickly because, yeah, so that's pretty cool. So it's, thank you, Sindri, for keeping meticulous notes on that. So we are just, yeah, ex pretty much exactly a year uh, into this text. And we've covered one, I have notes for myself, one, two, three, four, five, six follies so far. Folly number one. Folly, again, are things that we tell ourselves that are foolish in the long game and get us into trouble. Folly number one is the folly of temptation, which is, oh, I like how that looks. That looks great. Let me try it. That's folly number one. That's where we began. This is where Adam, he brought the example from Adam and Eve. So it says that Eve saw the fruit, that it looked good. So she ate it. And the snake said it's good. Try it, you'll like it. So the first basic elementary folly, and we're all susceptible to this, and we've all done it, is it looks good, I want it, that's it. So the solution to that, or the counter argument, because this book is all about feeding another narrative into our mind so that when this thought comes into our mind, we have another one that can sideswipe it. You know like the Iron Dome in Israel? You know the Iron Dome works? Right, there's a, there's a rocket that shot. Like, hopefully not, but if rockets are coming in, you know, enemy rockets, the Iron Dome comes, they shoot missiles, bunch of, and they phew, knock it out of the sky. That's what we're trying to do here. This is the Iron Dome. This is the psychological Iron Dome. The mental Iron Dome is when we have this errant thought. That's a good word, errant thought. Folly is like, who says folly? I, don't, I mean, other than this book. I don't know. But it's like an errant thought that comes in, a destructive thought, a dangerous thought, a self-harming thought comes in. How do we blast it out of the air? How do we blast it out of our consciousness with an opposing thought? That's where the correction comes in. The tikkun comes in. So the first thought, the first negative thought is, oh, this looks good. Let me try it. The counter thought that can knock it out of the, out of the, out of the mind is, come on, that's degrading. If you really want something good, there are better things that you can do with your time. Now that may not always work, but that is what he says in this book is a counter thought. If the thought is, oh, this apple, although the forbidden fruit was not an apple, but let's just say, let's just go with popular um, belief. Oh, this apple looks good, says Eve in the Garden of Eden. The counter thought could be, and perhaps should be, one second, I am a human being. I'm better than just running after apples that look good. If I want something good, let me listen to some music or study something wise or learn some Torah. Let me do something that's a little bit more valuable with my life. That is a modern way of, of blasting it out of our mind. The second folly that we've covered, I'm just going over what we've done until now because we're up to chapter 15, which begins a bit of a new, new chapter, and literally and figuratively, in this book. So folly number two that we covered was the folly of where it goes beyond temptation to more along the lines of an addiction, which is not only I like how it looks, but I need to have it. Because I've trained myself 
to almost need it in my, in, in my life. I, and the way he described it is that we move, so we keep on moving further and further and further into a certain space, and it becomes part of our habit and part of our, our just part of our life that it feels like we just need to have it. So the counter that he says in this text, and again, you know, it's, everything is contextual, but what he says is the counter argument to that or the correction or the way to knock that out of the, the space is to meditate on the fact that this is harmful, this is evil, this is not healthy, etc., and therefore that can hopefully knock that out. The next one is the folly of rationalization, where a person says it's not so bad anyway. Person says, oh, this thing, eh, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. The correction to that is, what do you mean it's not so bad? This thing is harming me, right? So I tell myself it's not so bad. The corrective, the correction, or the correct, corrective thought, which should be, it is harming. The next one we cover for is the folly of contentedness, which says, I'm better off this way. I'm better off actually engaging in this lifestyle and this behavior, it's, it's actually working. Or it's not only working, I'm better off this way. The correction is, and we explain this through a very mystical process, is no, this is unsustainable and ultimately destructive for me. The next one we discussed is the folly of discretion, which is no one will know. I'll do this and no one's going to know. And he said, we covered this not that long ago, he said, no, it's written all over, all over your face. Of course everyone's going to know. Well, you know one's going to know. Everyone can see right through it. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. The other ones are a little bit like pulling back on some history. It's maybe harder to remember. But this one I think we did fairly recently. person says, oh, yeah, I'll do this. And no one's going to know. He says, nah, a look, a glance, a word. You, you, you betray yourself. You, you, you give yourself away through these little actions and everyone knows. All right. The next one is. And this is the last thing that we talked about is the folly of justification where a person says either I'm too weak, I'm just unable to, you know, I'm just, I don't have the strength to counteract this negative temptation or they made me do it. It's my friends who made me do it. And to that he said, number one, you say you're too weak, you have all the strength that you need because you have a godly soul that is perfectly, um, perfectly, um, infused with energy, to infused with power to combat the animal soul and its, all of its mishigasin, all of its uh, follies. So you absolutely have the ability. And as far as they made me do it, blaming friends or whatever it is, we have to own our choices and recognize that even if we've had negative influence from outside, but we were the ones that were part of connecting with that negative influence, therefore it ultimately comes back to us. And therefore we need to, we need to own that and move away from that. All right, this gets us to chapter 15. So chapter 15 begins a new conversation. And as I mentioned a little, uh, a few minutes ago, the conversation is about the nature of the human being. And I'm going to use a word here that may not sound nice. I don't, I don't, know, if it, I don't know if it doesn't sound nice, but it may sound a little weird. The superiority of the human being. I think we have maybe an aversion to saying that word superiority. Maybe it's like, ooh, who's like superior? It doesn't sound right. Doesn't sound kosher, but nonetheless, we talk about it in, 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 in Judaism and Kabbalah, the superiority of the human being. What is the maila? In Hebrew, it sounds better. What is the maila? What is the advantage? What is the quality? Maybe that's a better word. What is the quality of the human being that transcends all other forms of life? And, and, how, and, and how does that um, impact our 
choices and our thank you and our um, and our being. So let's jump in now to the text. Without further ado, let's jump in to our text. This is going to be chapter 15. It's a long chapter. Some, uh, sorry, it's a long discourse. I keep on calling it chapter 15. It's actually discourse 15. It's divided into discourses, and each discourse has chapters. Most discourses have one, two, or three chapters. This one has five. It's very long, very elaborate, very articulate, just really beautiful in its description. So that's why it, it really speaks for itself. I'm going to share my screen so you guys can follow in online, and we're going to read this together. All right, chapter one. He says the following. Man must know. Page 214 in the books and in the handout. Man must know. Sorry, man as man must know. <laughs> man as man must know. What is man as man must know? It works better in the Hebrew. It says, ha-adam. A person, being a human being, must know. I don't like the gender-specific translation of Adam as man, to be honest. It's, I don't, Adam doesn't mean man. Adam means human being. What it's really saying here, as a human being, right? You and I, as human beings, we human beings need to know. As indeed, let's continue, as indeed every thoughtful person does, that man, a human being, is the chosen of creation. Of all other forms of life, of all other forms of reality, it's the human being that is what he calls the chosen of the creations. The select, back inside, second line, the select of all God's works. And not only, look what he says, not only of his earthly creatures, but also of the heavenly hosts. In other words, the human being is not just top, to mix metaphors, top dog uh, amongst earthly beings, but even vis-a-vis -vis heavenly beings, the human being stands head and shoulders above all other forms of life. So put very simply, put very simply, the human being, and we've, we've discussed this numerous times, there are four kingdoms of life on earth. There is inanimate life, vegetable life, animal life, and human life. In some, sort, in some scientific conversations, scientists talk about three forms of life, inanimate, vegetation and animal life, and humans are part of that animal kingdom. <laughs> Torah does not subscribe to that. Torah says no, not three, but four categories, because the human being is fundamentally different than the animal. So for this, I'll tell you a story. There's once a young girl who com comes over to her mom, says to her, ask her mom, tell me, where do we come from? Where do human beings come from? And... Her mom says, human beings, where do they come from? Where do we come from? God. God created human beings, and uh, that's where we came from. Okay. The girl says to her mother, that's not what dad said. Dad said we come from the, uh, from the apes. So the mom says, not a question. Your dad is talking about his side of the family. I'm talking about my side of the family. Anyway, so that's, yeah. Yes, yeah, science talks about evolution and, and this and that and the other. Fine, wonderful. But Judaism talks about a different model of understanding human beings. It's not random. It's not happenstance. It's not just one big chalant. And, you know, chalant is like just one big stew where everything is mixed together. Human beings are created in a very deliberate fashion. Human beings exist for a very deliberate purpose. We have an innate sense of purpose and meaning 
because that is really the core and the foundation of our being. Human beings are fundamentally different than all other forms of life. And in this conversation, not only different, but of a higher stature, of a higher stature. That should not lead to arrogance. That should not lead to, um, to taking advantage of, of, of the world around us. On the contrary, it's a sign of responsibility. God says to Adam and Eve that I'm placing you in the garden, la'avda ulishamra, to work the garden and to guard the garden. To watch, la'avda means la'avoda, to work it. The shamra, like shmira, shamar, means to guard it, to protect it. So our job, and the job hasn't changed since. We're still in God's garden, that's this world, and our job is still to work it, which means to make it better, and l'shamra, to guard it, which means to prevent it from harm. So for a human being to, and this is probably a very obvious thing, for a human being to go ahead and abuse, God forbid, any part, any element of this world, whether it's, I mean, let's start from the top, whether it's another human being to harm someone else, whether it's an animal, whether it's vegetation, whether it's even inanimate life. To harm anything is just completely, completely beyond the pale and, and completely beyond the scope of, of what a human being ought to be doing. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't, you know, um, take vegetable life. Can we say kill a vegetable? Let's say kill a vegetable. Kill a vegetable to eat. We're allowed to kill a vegetable to eat. What do we mean by kill a vegetable? You can pull out a potato from the ground. A growing potato. Potatoes grow in the ground? Yes? Do we? Is that how it works? I think so. Okay. I'm not a farmer. Just saying. But yet, we're allowed to pull out. You can cut off whatever to eat. Torah permits. Torah permits the same thing with animals. It wasn't originally like this. With Adam and Eve, they, were, they had to be vegetarians. Or even maybe... What happens when you don't eat fish? What's that called? Pescatarian? 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 No, you, you do eat fish. You do eat fish. Oh, well, they're not. No meat. No, they were vegetarians. They were not allowed to eat. Yeah, they were, they were, they, they could not eat animals. Vegan. Until, at, vegan. Until after the flood, God tells Noah, you survived 12 months feeding all the animals. All right, now you can feed them. If you want, you don't have to, but you can now, it's permitted. Permitted. It's all by, and everything I'm telling you right now is straight up. This is not even commentary. This is straight up Torah, straight up the verses. But what's the message? You're only allowed to do so for the sake of survival, for the sake of, of so, but it's not in a sense, not, not suddenly that you have free range to do whatever you want and harm other forms of life and, and whatever, and be cruel. This is not at all what we would call loosely kosher and maybe even. Figure, maybe even literally kosher. It's not kosher to harm creation. We had a few years ago Tzvi Freeman. I think some of you were there. We had him for Rabbi Tzvi Freeman, tremendous author and scholar, and he now lives in Atlanta, but then he wasn't living in Atlanta. He was living in Los Angeles, and we brought him in. His daughter is Mrs. Sharfstein, Rebison Sharfstein from Chabad of Georgia Tech. Anyway, so we brought him in for a Shabbaton. Actually, Around this time of year, it was Tu B'Shvat. It was actually Shabbat was Tu B'Shvat, the birthday of the trees. So he spoke about the environment. And he said something amazing. I feel like I've repeated this recently, but it's always a good refresher. Huh? It's worth it. It's wor- it's real- it was really good. Anyway, he said something along the lines of the whole question of, you know, environment, yeah, pro, anti, I mean, whatever. I don't, I don't know if that's the way that it's phrased. But the environment question has been completely skewed. Because it's become a political thing, you know, right, left, whatever. 
Meanwhile, it's, it's a foundational thing. You tell someone, you know, the Bible says that God created the world, right? God created the earth. Yeah, do you believe God created the earth? Yes. Like a religious person. You believe God created the world? Yes. That automatically means we should take care of the world. If God created this beautiful world, automatically we shouldn't be harming it. So it's not a political thing. It's, it, can, it can be also a straight-up moral, spiritual obligation. Anyway, I'm not doing justice to his talk. It was a very articulate talk. I'm giving you the 45-second version that seems like, is it that good? Anyway, but that's, uh, that, that, that was the upshot of it, is that it's not Robert, like, yes? Um, have you heard uh, any um, Orthodox people say, uh, it doesn't, the Hebrew word doesn't mean guard the earth, it means pave over the earth or control the earth? Never heard anyone say that. Okay. I would okay. challenge anyone who says that to back that up in sources. Yeah. Yeah. Pave the earth, pave paradise, and put up a parking lot. No, I, don't, I never, never heard anyone who would say that, and I would challenge anyone who would ever say that to show me chapter and verse or commentaries. Pull, pull it up on Safari and, and share it, because that, 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 that does not... Safari is easy, right? You could just uh, send it digitally. That is not a thing. That is 100% not a thing. So is it, is it our responsibility to actually be proactive on not destroying our life support system? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, does that extend into, yeah. you know, activism or? Oh, uh, activism, is another, activism is another question. Activism depends on the personality of the person. The question is, you know, activism in, in, in Judaism, what does that mean? Does that mean to stand outside a, a restaurant that's not kosher and start shouting at Jews that are going in there? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the question about activism, activism is another thing. Activism is, is already, you know, how far do I want to go to, uh, to shout my, uh, my agenda? Do I do it in a loving way, in a kind way, in an educational way, or in a, in a way that's, that's making, a, you know, making, making noise? That's another question. I'm not, I'm not going to weigh in on that. That's, that's already personality. But what I'm saying is that according to Torah, right, according to Torah, it's very simple. God created this world. It's a beautiful place. Human beings have also an obligation to cultivate it and whatever. So we're allowed to, obviously, we're allowed to utilize the world for survival and to further and to, you know, to, to further our mission, but not in any way to harm the world. So, I mean, the question is, who defines what's harming and what's helping? That's, that's a nuanced question. That's a valid question to have. That's more of a Fabrengan question, but that's, that's, a, that's a certainly a very important question to have. But the point, the overall, and I don't want to get bogged down in the details here, the point, oh, the overall point here is, that whereas science says the world is comprised of three elements, inanimate life, vegetation life, and animal life, Torah and Judaism says there's a fourth category, and that's the human being. And the human being is not just, you know, this, another layer of the animal kingdom, but the human being here, and I still have this text up here on the screen, and it's in front of us as well, it's Bechir and Avraim, it's the chosen of creation, the selective of, of, of all God's works. Not only on earth, but also in heaven. And that, you know, let's focus on that last piece for a second. Not only on earth, but also in heaven means, like I said before, of all, there are angels. And there are all of these uh, heavenly beings and, and, and heavenly realities. Of everything in heaven, the human being is Bechir and Avraim, the chosen of all works. This is, by the way, a Jewish answer to the question, a Jewish perspective on the question, is there life on other planets? You know what a Jewish answer would be? Is there life on other planets? I don't know. But even if there were, 
it would change nothing. Are you with me on this? And others, now, now, hold on one second, time out. NASA may have its agenda. They, there may be other reasons to explore this and to find out if there is life on other planets that might benefit us or whatever it is. I'm not, I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying that no matter what else is out there, it doesn't change the centrality of our mission. It doesn't change the focus of our Torah. It doesn't change our job description. Nothing changes what, what, no matter what would be found. There was a... There was a professor, his name was, which one was it? I'm trying to remember, was it Velvo Green? Who was employed by NASA? Might have been Professor Velvo Green. I'll tell you a funny, interesting backstory of Velvo Green. He was a top scientist in Minnesota. The Chabad rabbi in Minnesota, Rabbi Feller. Rabbi Feller is the most colorful character you've ever met. He is hilarious. This guy, he is just He's, I mean, he's kind of hard now getting up in age, but he, certainly back in the heyday, just absolutely a riot, this guy. Anyway, he was trying for months to get a meeting with his top professor in Minnesota. And he finally got a meeting. It's the middle of the meeting, late afternoon, and he realizes he didn't have mincha. So he excused himself in this, in this profess, top scientist's big office. He says, excuse me. I need to take a few minutes. And he goes to the corner of the room, puts on his gartel, his, like, you know, the, uh, the string thing, and he pulls out a prayer book. This is before cell phones. You know, we would have a different way of doing this now. He pulls out a prayer book or whatever it is and starts davening mincha. He finishes praying, and Velvet Green says to, to him, like, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know where you came from. I don't know who you are. But anyone who worked so hard to get a meeting, and then in the middle of the meeting, kind of uh, checked out to pray, you're legit, you're the real deal. And that earned immense respect in Professor Velvet Green's eyes for Rabbi Feller. He then get, got close to Chabad. He then developed a relationship with the Rebbe. He had their very, um, fierce is not a good word, their very spirited uh, um, communications, letters. We have the letters. They're very, very spirit letters between Rabbi Green, uh, Velvel Green, Professor Green, and, and the Rebbe about science and, and Torah, like about age of the universe and, and all these things. And the Rebbe walks him off the ledge a few times. He's like, I know you're very passionate about this, but let's, let's find areas in which we can agree on. It's, it's very, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an art, it's a study in the art of dialogue to see how the exchange goes between Velvet Green and the Rebbe, and how the Rebbe kind of says, let's, let's move the conversation to areas that we can all agree on, but it's, it's amazing. Anyway, long story short, I believe it was Professor Green who was hired by NASA to, um, he was a microbiologist? Is that, is that, a, is that a word? Is that a, is, that a, is that a field? Microbiologist? Mm -hmm. Studying like tiny things, bacteria? Studying tiny bacteria. So NASA was looking, one of the things they look for on other planets is bacteria, signs of life. So they hired him to be part of this team to research, you know, the findings of life on other planets. So he actually asked later on after he had a relation with the rabbi, like, is this kosher? Is it kosher to be in the field of or in the employment of, you know, the job description of looking for life on other planets? Or is that blasphemous? The rabbi said there's nothing wrong with it. You can look for it. But you should know no matter what's found, what I told you before, no matter what's found... Doesn't, not really going to change our mission statement. 
Anyway, the point here is, the human being is the chosen of creation, not only on earth, but also in heaven. Let's continue. Fourth line in. He, man, human being, is the central of all creatures of the spiritual beings and the physical ones. This is just repeating it once again. The central of all creatures, spiritual and physical. Let's continue. Now, he, now he breaks down the similarities and distinctions. Where do human beings, in what way does a human being uh, reflect the rest of creation, and in which ways do human beings differ from the rest of creation? So now he's going to talk about the commonality, the similarity between humans and everyone else. Whatever God created, man included, everything that exists, all creatures are composites of body and soul. So this gets to how I started today's class. Everything in existence, physical, spiritual, everything has a body and a soul. This is a trait held in common by the earthly creatures and by the heavenly hosts. So not only do physical beings have body and soul, body, the physical body that we see in the soul, the energy that gives it life, but even the heavenly hosts, and heavenly hosts basically means angels. Even the angels also have body and soul. Although, here we go, look what he says here, although they are not identical by any means, in other words, physical beings and spiritual beings are not the same at all. Why? For God created the physical by combining the four elements of fire, air, water, and earth, and the heavenly beings are produced by combining fire and air only. I'm going to break this down in a moment. As is written, he made his angel spirit, his attendants flaming fire, yet both possess body and soul. So here's what he says. Everything in this physical world, all physical beings, all physical matter, is comprised of four elements. Esh, Ruach, Mayim, Afar. Fire, Eshruch, air, fire, air, water, and earth. Now, it doesn't mean literal fire or literal air or literal water or literal earth, but it means the elements, that which is akin to fire, akin to air, akin to water, akin to earth. So there's heat, there's oxygen, there's moisture, and there's substance, there's physical matter. Every physical being has fire, air, water, and earth. This is a way that the ancient philosophers understood creation. This fire, air, water, and earth is a, is a construct that's brought in, in, in ancient philosoph philosophical writings, not only Jewish writings, but also those uh, from non-Jewish philosophers as well. What many have done is explain the periodic table according to these four fundamentals. You could take all of the, the chemicals, if you will, in the periodic table and kind of and, 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 and join them into one of these four categories, that which reflects the nature of fire, air, water, or earth. So long story short, and I don't, I, I've seen it before, I don't, I don't think it's the time to do that right now, you can look it up on your own, but everything can ultimately be, be, be um, drilled down, or not drilled down, be, um, reduced to these four to one of these four to these four elements. But when we talk about spiritual beings, when we talk about spiritual entities, we have a different calculation. Spiritual entities, heavenly beings, 
only have two of the four elements, fire and air, no water and no earth, because fire and air are the spiritual elements. Think about fire. Fire is very ethereal. Air is very non-substantive. Water already has substance. Earth has substance. So spiritual beings have two out of the four elements. And he brings a source text for this. Look at the, look at the, the verse. The verse is right in the middle of that first paragraph in the italics. I'm going to read the Hebrew. On the Hebrew side it says, Ose um, malachav, he created his angels, ruchos. He created them out of spirit. But ruchos, spirits, ruach, could also mean air. So he created them out of air, out of spirit air. Misharsav, he created his attendants, esh lohet, out of flaming fire. So we see air and fire in the construct of the angels. So air and fire are mentioned. This is a quote from Psalms. We don't have water, we don't have earth. So there is a distinction, a big distinction, between angels and humans and really angels and everything else. All physical beings have are composites of four elements. Spiritual beings are composites of only two elements. It's kind of like how many ingredients? Leah has what now has become, at least to me, a famous cheesecake recipe that's made of, let me think of how many, how many ingredients. One, two, three, four. Four, re four ingredient cheesecake. It's an incredible hack. It's an incredible hack. You can make a cheesecake that's unbelievable. You guys want another cheesecake recipe? Yeah. You ready for this? You ready for the hack? You take one tub, one round tub of soft cream cheese, of the whipped cream cheese. You take one standard size vanilla Greek yogurt, one egg, and I think a little sugar, I'm not sure how much, some amount of sugar, I don't, I don't. and then you just mix it together. That's it. This is, this is, this is two minutes. Oh yeah, no one's making that, you buy that. Buy that crust. <laughs> Buy that. Don't make that. I mean, you make it if you want. If you make it, suddenly it's going to be more than four ingredients. No, but the, oh, then you bake it. Then you bake it. Then you bake it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, hold on. no. I think one. I, don't quote me on this. I have to get it from, from Leah. Exactly. But it's basically a tub of cream cheese, a yogurt, an egg, and then some sugar in it, and then you just you mix it with a fork. We're talking about three minutes later, you pour that thing into a, into a graham cracker crust, pie crust, and you bake it for, again, I don't have the fuzzy on the details here. I can tell you the ingredients, not the amounts and not the timing and whatever and the temperature. But you bake that thing, the next thing you know. So that is a cheesecake made out of, two, out of four ingredients. In heaven, their cheesecake is made out of two. Only fire and air. I'm kidding. So physical beings, everything physical, everything tangible is made out of four elements. Four ingredients, fire, air, water, earth. And not exactly literally fire. There's no fire in this table. But there's some measure of heat, some measure of, of, of an element that reflects some measure of heat that's in, that's in this table. I'm not a scientist. I can't break it down. Others have broken it down. But that's not for right now. But in heaven, they only have two ingredients to everything, to, to, the, to the angels. What are the two ingredients? Fire and air. So there's a distinction. How many ingredients, how many items, if you will, are going into the creation of physical beings or spiritual beings? Yet, and here's the commonality, and that's the M dash there, which I already read, but I, I want, I'm going to read it again right now. Yet, both 
earthly beings and even heavenly beings both possess body and soul. Let's continue, i.e., that is, although the heavenly hosts, that means the angels, are created from the ethereal elements of fire and air, in other words, heavenly beings are created from the non-physical items, the non-physical ingredients, the elements of fire and air, nevertheless, they possess bodies. And you and I think of bodies as something strictly physical. What he's trying to say here is that there's a type of a body that's not physical. There's a, it's still called a body. It's still called a body, but it's not what we, what we would look at as a body. So what we look at as a body is the physical body. Yeah, you could touch it. The physical body of all existence. Things have substance. Things have structure. You can feel it. It's tangible. Yeah, but that's because our reality is comprised of four ingredients, fire, air, and then water and earth. But in heaven, they don't have the water and earth. They just have the fire and the air. But relative to the spirit of the angel, there is something that's called the body relative to that spirit. It's all relative. So let's continue. And although, so again, although heavenly beings are created of fire and air, they still have a body. And although the physical beings are created from the earthly elements of water and earth, nonetheless, they possess souls. The fundamental difference is that for heavenly beings, form, listen to this, when it comes to heavenly beings, form naturally has dominance over substance. While for the earthly beings, substance naturally has dominance over form. Each one, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll share with you the, the Hebrew term here because it's, uh, it's, it's worthwhile. It's Kadai to learn. So the, 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 the terminology here is chomer and tsura. Chomer means substance and tsura means the form that the substance takes. So for example, use a simple example. Um, you take, you're in a pottery class, and you get a lump, I've never been in a pottery class, but I'm assuming you would get a lump of clay, is this, has anybody in a, been in a pottery class? You get a lump of clay, you get that wheel that spins, yeah? I know enough to be, to pretend that I know, but I don't think I actually know. Anyway, you, let's say you get a lump of clay, yeah, and then you get that wheel thing, and then you put the lump of clay, and then the next thing you know, you're shaping it, it's turning around, you're putting your hand in, you create a... You create a divot, and then it comes a bowl, and then you shape it like this, and you're doing this and that and the other. You got yourself a vase. It's amazing. Gewaldic. It's beautiful. Great. So has the substance changed? No. From the beginning, you had a lump of clay. You still have a lump of clay, but now it takes on a different form. So what's happened, really, is that the chomer is the same. The substance is the same. The tsura is different. The tsura is the form. It's a form to the physical, but what it also means is the utility of it. Because a lump of clay has, I would say, and I apologize to all lumps of clay, I would say a lump of clay has limited utility. But a bowl suddenly now has a little bit more utility. You turn that lump of clay into a bowl, suddenly you, have, you could use it for this, you could use it for that, you could use it to put soup inside, theoretically you could put apples inside, whatever you put inside that bowl is, is you know, the, can, can go in there. So what's happened is the form, the tsura, the form, has now redefined what this thing is. It's no longer a lump of clay, it's now a bowl. The form would be, in, in our language, we would call that the soul, which the soul reflects the purpose of what drives it, the, the inspiration behind it. That's what a soul is. So the body of, of, the, of the thing is still the, the clay itself. That's what it is. 
but the form would be like the soul. So that would be on a, on a, on a very physical level. The point here is that everything in existence has chomer and surah. Like this table in front of me, right? This table has a chomer. It has the substance. And then the tsura, the form, is the, the table. And now it has utility. It's no longer just some plastic or whatever this is. Plastic, right? It's, it's, now, it's now a table. It becomes a table due to both chomer and tsura. Right? You, have, you can't just have form without matter. If you just have form of a table but there's no matter, that's what we call an invisible table. And I would not put down, I would not put down a, uh, a computer on there. I don't think it's going to last. So um, let me spell these. Let me spell these. Um, give me a second here. Chomer. Isn't Chomer more of the spiritual entity versus Tzura is the form, regardless of what shape it takes, it's still Tzura? Whether you mush it, I mean, it's still clay, then it's a base, but it's still tzuro. Um Yeah, look, chomer, there's different ways to slice it, but the way I'm going to it today is like this. Chomer is the actual matter of the thing. Chomer is a substance. And sura is the form, which the form is connected with the why and wherefore of the thing. Tzura is, is, con- tzura is connected to this, what we would call soul. What's soul? Soul means a higher purpose. Soul is the energy that, that, that drives it. Soul is its, its purpose. Like, for example, a human being. We have a body and then a soul. What's the soul? The soul is, like, why we're here. Not that we are here, but, but, that, but why we are here. And so you have the same thing with a, with, a, with a lump of clay. A lump of clay, why is it here? I don't know, it's a lump of clay. But then you make it into a, fo- you form it into a bowl. Now you know why it's here. It's here to act as a bowl. You have a table. So there's a substance of the table. Right? And then you have the form of the table. The form now shapes, literally shapes, what it is. It defines it as, as a table. Otherwise, it's just, it's just a piece of plastic. It's just a stool. <laughs> right. Or you have, like, let's say, um, right, or it could be a chair. It could be a stool. Right? Before it was a piece of wood. Now it's a stool. And, and the truth is you don't always have to reshape something to give it form. It might already have form, but by you almost... Blessing it. Yeah, you're like, you, you know, it's kind of like this in Jewish law. Very interesting. It's very interesting in Jewish law. You could have something, like for Shabbos, there's laws of muktzah. You guys know what muktzah is? Yeah, muktzah is things that you, that we're not supposed to touch on Shabbos because when, at the time that Shabbos came in, it wasn't in our mind space that we were going to utilize this thing. Or it wasn't a... It just wasn't a, a Shabbos-permitted or Shabbos-friendly thing to use. So when Sha- at the time that Shabbos came in, it w- just was completely off our radar. So even though now it, we might want it to be on our radar, you can't, you can't switch that status on Shabbos. It becomes off-limits. We don't touch it. So the, an example, it's brought down in Jewish law, and I'm going to give you the very, very short version of it. But if there is like a piece of wood, oh, so a twig, like a piece of, uh, like a branch, on Shabbos is muktzah. Why? Because it has no Shabbat utility. Now, if it's a walking stick and whatever, and you had and you already had that utility before Shabbos, and you've already used it as such, that's one thing. But just just a stick, you find a twig on the ground, pick it up, it's muktzah. Now, what does it mean? Like, what did you do with it? Nothing. But just touching it itself, it's muktzah. It's considered. It's a different category of, of Shabbat um, prohibition that's maybe not so well known, but it's 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 a rabbinic category. Called muktzah. You're not doing work with it. You're not working with it. You're just picking up a stick. Still muktzah. 
If you hang around the kids enough, you'll hear them then, then tell each other, Muktza, Muktza, don't touch. Yeah. Even within the Eruv? Even within the Eruv. Yeah. No, not everything. You touch many things, but certain things, certain things that had no utility, that had no utility before Shabbos or when Shabbos came in, like a stick, a branch, well, what's the utility? Unless, it ha- unless it's the official walking stick, then that's a different thing, that it had a utility. But if it's just a stick, then it, has no ut- it didn't have a human utility, right? Then you can't suddenly now say, oh, I want the stick for something. It's, it's muktza. Um, so what's going on over here is the following. What if there's a piece of, of wood? You chop wood, and you have like a, you know, you have some wood lying around. So is it muktza on Shabbos? It's muktza. Unless before Shabbos you designate it as a thing. Now, doesn't mean you have to change this, doesn't mean you have to actually build it into a chair. But even if you said to yourself, oh, I could use that as a, as a seat, or I can use that as a, as a stool on Shabbat, and you sat down on it, or maybe even if you didn't sit down on it, as, as long as you thought about it, then on Shabbat, it's no longer a, a stump of a tree or whatever it is, it's now, or a piece of, you know, a piece of a tree, it's now a stool that you can then move around and use. It's, it's just changed. So, so Tzura, when we talk about Chomer and Tzura, Chomer is, again, very simply, Chomer is the substance itself, the molecules, the, ad, the, the actual physical substance. Tzura is the shape, the purpose, the utility. And that's granted in one of two ways, or one of many ways, either by actually shaping it, or by designating it, or by assigning it a utility in the mind. So it's either the actual physical substance. No, sorry. So the chomer is the physical substance. The tzura is the form, the soul, the utility, the purpose, the direction that it's taking. So everything in life has chomer and tzura. So on a very loose level, we would say the physical body is our chomer, even though it also has a shape, by the way. But within chomer, there's and you could slice it many, many different ways. But generally speaking, the body is the chomer, and the soul is the tzura. The body is the physical substance of the human being, and the soul provides direction, the shape, the purpose, what's the, what's the utility of the, of the human being, etc. But again, even within the physical body itself, the physical body also has a shape. So that could be a tzura of the chomer itself, as opposed to the tzura, the pure tzura of the soul. But I, without getting too complicated, because again, this is just, I just want to kind of get into this topic and then get back in, inside the text, because we, it's so beautiful, and, and I don't want to lose focus on what we're doing here. What we're saying here is simple, that everything in existence, sorry, point number one is the human being is fundamentally different than everything, than every other creature, or is the, the chosen of all, of all creation. That was the first point we said. Then, to kind of counter that point, we said, one second, Everything in existence is the same in that everything has body and soul. And even though in heaven they only have two out of four ingredients, nonetheless, there's still chomer and sur, there's still form and there's still matter. Even though it's spiritual matter and it's, no mat, it's not a matter that we could touch or see with our physical eyes because it doesn't have those two elements of fire, of, of water and earth, even spirituality, even spirituality has some sort of substance. The difference is that, and this is the last line that he said, and we're going to get back to it inside. The difference is that on earth, physical beings, what you see most predominantly with our eyes, what we see is the chomer, the substance. And only then do we see the tzura, the form, not just the physical shape, but like 
why it is. We first see what it is, and then we learn why it is. So you see a slab. You see a slab of, I don't know, whatever they made this out of. Is this metal? Is this glass? Plat maybe some plastic. Yeah, there's definitely, the case is plastic, whatever. Yeah, you see this slab, and then you're like, but it's not just a slab, it also, or, or it, what it does is X, Y, and Z. It's a smartphone, you can make calls. I mean, who makes calls anymore? No, I'm kidding, you can make calls, you can text, you can this, you can that, you can navigate, you can get all the knowledge, almost all the information, knowledge in the world you can pull up at your fingertips in a second, which is just absolutely crazy. Anyway, so that's the, the purpose of this. So what is, the, what is the chomer? A rectangle, right? A black rectangle. That's what the chomer is. What's the tzura? It's a smartphone. Everything has chomer and tzura. But in a physical, do physically dominated world, in a world dominated by the physical, the first thing we encounter is chomer. You meet somebody, the first thing you notice is the physical. And then you get, hopefully, then you get to know them. Then you get to know who they are, what they're about, what drives them, what motivates them, what, what gets them going. Then you learn, you, you get in touch with their spirit. First thing we encounter is the chomer. And hopefully then we encounter the tzur. But in heaven, he says, I'm going to repeat that line. I think I read it, but we'll do it again. In heaven, it's the opposite. The first thing you encounter is the tzura, the soul, the purpose. Right? The first thing you encounter is the ethereal part of it. And only then do you notice that it also has a, has a, has a, a chomer, has a substance. Now, that substance is not visibly noticeable because it doesn't have the physical characteristics of physical reality. Nonetheless, there is some sort of chomer, which I don't, I, I don't know that I can explain what that is. I can tell you what it is. It's made of fire and air. What that is beyond that, I don't know that I could describe that. But the point is that even angels, heavenly beings, have a chomer, have a substance. But the primary element above is not the substance, it's the form. I'm going to read this last line. I'm going to share this last line again and read it um, inside. The fundamental difference is, because we talked about the commonality, the commonality is that both physical and heavenly beings have both body and soul, matter and form. But the difference is that for heavenly beings, form naturally has dominance over substance. What you notice is the form, not the substance. The substance is secondary to the form. While for the earthly beings, you and I, substance naturally has dominance over form, the first thing you notice is the substance, is the physical, and only then do you hopefully grow to, to discover the form, the spiritual, the spiritual about it. Now, let's continue inside. Body and soul, we still have, I just want to give you a heads up, one, two, three, four paragraphs, and we have exactly 12 minutes, so this is perfect. This is perfect. We're gonna make, uh, we're gonna make a, a line to the end of this first chapter. And I'm telling you, we're gonna end with a question. It's a beautiful, beautifully articulate chapter. Let's go. Body and soul, he says. Body and soul fit and conform to each other. This is, this is a big idea. A body and a soul are, have a congruence. They fit and conform to each other. Though essentially they are opposites, soul being spiritual and body physical, while spiritual and physical are direct opposites, he, that's kind of repetitive in the English, right? So although they are essentially opposites, one is spiritual, one is physical, and spiritual and physical are opposite, nevertheless, 
the two do fit and conform to each other. So even though the body, think about a physical a, a person. Yeah, we, each of us, we have a body and a soul. So he says like this, your body and your soul, they are a good shidduch. You know what a shidduch is? They're a good match. They're a good match. They're good um, partners. Even though one is physical and one is spiritual, it's like, remember that book from John Gray? Men are from Mars, women from Venus? I don't know if that book is still in or not in, or if it's been canceled. I have no idea. I'm not suggesting anyone cancel it. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just uh, proclaiming ignorance here. I haven't paid attention to this stuff lately. But in a similar way, we would say, you know, the body is from one planet and the soul is from another planet. It's a completely different reality. So although that's true, nonetheless, they do have compatibility with each other. And look what he says here. How is that possible? He says, this is another of the wondrous work, works of the upright in thought, in other words, of God, in his creating Eshmei and creating something from nothing and combining them. In other words, how is it that a physical being, namely the body, and a spiritual being, namely the soul, how can there possibly be compatibility between them? The answer is, it's God. Hamafli Lassos. God produces the wonder, the miracle of joining joining body and soul together in this perfect symbiotic relationship. It is only, now we're on page 216, so let's, uh, let's turn the page, 216. It is only in the province of the Creator, in other words, it's only God who could do this, to perform such works, such miracles of joining spirit and body in such cooperation and harmony that they seem to have been one in their essential characters from their formation. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable to take a body and a soul and to match them up so perfectly to the point that it looks like they were made for each other. They were made for each other. Are you kidding me? Do you know what kind of opposites they started off as? One is physical, one is spiritual, completely different realities. And yet God combines them as one and joins them together in a way of perfect symbiosis. Hence, he says, the body and soul are called R and Kali, light and vessel, soul being light and body being vessel. Now, light and vessel are not just different, they're polar opposites. Light is light, vessel is vessel. One is spiritual, one is physical. They are complete opposites. And yet, just like light and vessel, just like light in the, in the light vessel analogy, the light fits into the vessel, it fits into the container. The same thing is true with soul and body. Soul fits into the body. So here's, here's really the big idea. Your soul, my soul, our souls, are very, on some level, on some level, are comfortable, if you will, in the body, even though the body is a hostile, foreign environment, but it's been tweaked, it's been tuned to work. I'm trying to think of a good example. It's kind of like maybe an example would be, and just hear me out for a second, maybe the example is like a, an artificial, like a transplant of an artificial organ. Do they do that? Artificial organ transplant? Yes? Yeah? like a prosthetic limb, yeah. You're connecting something that's made out of like plastic and metal and you're, 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 and you're plugging it into the human body. And it's like, how's that gonna work? And yet there's a way, there's a way to, to make that work. And I, I stand back and you know, I just marvel at that. We had a video, I'm looking to the screen right here. We had a class in here, one of the JLI courses and one of the things they focused on, oh, I think I know what it was. It was in This Can Happen, the, the course on Mashiach, about technology and how amazing things are today and how the, 
the advent of technology is you know, transforming the world we live in. And I think one of the examples was um, medicine and technology and prosthetics and all that stuff. And it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But here you have something that's foreign to the body that is being made compatible to, to be able to make work, to, to, to be able to be made to work together. And in a, I would say in a similar vein, but way beyond that, is the compatibility between two polar opposites called soul and body that God somehow puts together. This is what we call koach hamafli lasos. It's the power of the infinite, the power of the, of the wonder of wonders of God that God, only God can pull off. But like light and vessel, it's like hand and glove. It works, even though it doesn't make sense that it works, but God makes it happen. Now let's continue. Let's continue, and here's where it gets really interesting. Because so far, he's explained the commonality between the human being and everything else in creation. Remember, remember the arc of the narrative here. He started off by saying that human beings are fundamentally different. And then he went to, well, here's how they are the same, but now we're going to get back to the distinction. So we start out by saying human beings are different, radically different than anything else. Then we move to saying how similar everything is, including human beings, and now we're back to how we're different. So take a look. God created man's body. This is 216, second paragraph. God created man's body differently from other physical bodies. Regarding other physical bodies, when God uttered the appropriate command, and that means in the beginning of creation when God said, let there be this, let there be that. The body was created and was instantly invested with the soul. And both body and soul simultaneously appeared on the face of the earth. So when everything else was created, what happened in creation was body and soul came together simultaneously. For example, on the third day of creation, God said, let the earth be covered with greenery, vegetation. Grass bearing seed, fruit trees bearing fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in it on the earth, and, so, and, it, and it was so, or so it was. So God says, let there be, I'm just going to summarize, uh, paraphrase, let there be vegetation, greenery, um, uh, grass, plants, trees, etc. Let there be veg veg vegetative growth. And it was, and so it was. Let's continue inside. So what happened? The earth gave forth grasses and trees, each in its own form, and each has its own shape, with the, with the vegetative soul within it. Now, this is important. Every element of life has a soul. So human beings have a human soul. Animals have an animal soul. We also have an animal soul. But animals have an animal soul. Veg vegetation has a vegetative soul. Likewise, he says back inside, animals came forth from the earth as they are alive. They were born, or sorry, not born, they were created live animals, live creatures, a body and a soul together. The waters, too, swarmed with living creatures. When God created the fish, right, the fish emerged from the water. They were created from the water as fish, live fish with a body and a soul together. In all these cases, the creatures came into being, the body and soul, oh, one second, in all these cases, the creatures came into being, the body and the animating soul within it simultaneously. That's a very awkwardly written sentence. Nonetheless, I hope the point comes through. And that is that in all other forms of creation, when God created any form of life, that form of life emerged with a physical and a spiritual component at the same time, simultaneous, and it was alive. 
However, next paragraph, final paragraph on 216, the method of creating man, mankind, human being, was different. First, he created the body of man by itself, dust of the earth, without any animating soul within it. As it is written, God formed man, dust of the earth. First man was an inert clod, and only then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So what we find in the Torah's description of the creation of the human being is something that we don't find by any other form of life. By every other form of life, God said, let there be vegetation, vegetation. God said, let there be animals, there are animals. But when it comes to the human being, God first creates a golem. God first creates a body that's dead, inert, not inanimate almost, just a clod of earth in a human shape perhaps, but a clod of earth. And it's only after that, step two, that God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Man's body back inside. This is one, two, three, four, five lines in from the last paragraph. Man's body did not come forth from the earth with the animating spirit in it, as was the case with other creatures. Other creatures, as soon as they emerged, they were alive. Human being, no. First, the body emerged, and only then the soul came in, right? First, when it comes to the human being, first he made his body, creating it from the most gross matter. Gross meaning not like, ew, gross. Gross meaning like earthly, like physical. First, God made the human body, creating it from the most gross matter in a way that was inert. Inert means without movement. It was inanimate. This explains the phrase in the Torah, dust of the earth. The human being is created from the, don't think of dust as in like a powder, but think of it as the soil. Think of it as just a, a clump of, of earth. Man was a lifeless mass. I hope it's very evocative and very clear here what he's trying to say. The human being was created first as a golem, as a well, I mean, the golem didn't move, but I mean like just a clod of earth, lifeless mass. Compared to other beings, this is a lowly state because animals didn't start off dead, basically. Animals started off alive. Animals, yeah, the first lion was roaring to go and rare and whatever the phrase is, rearing to go, whatever. It was, it was, it was up and running right away. It, it emerged from the earth with a body and a soul right away. What, what, it was a one step. It was a one-step process. When it comes to the human being, it's a two-step process. And obviously the question is going to be why. But compared to other beings, this is a lowly state. In other words, the human being on a body level is lower than everything else. Although everything originates from the dust, 218, next page. Although everything originates from the dust from the earth, yet their bodies and souls, the bodies and souls of all other creatures, appeared as one. Man, however, was lifeless at the outset, and only later did he receive the breath of life. Okay, so this is a, a core distinction between animals, uh, really everything, and ant plants, and human beings. So we need to understand, listen to the question. We're going to end today with a question. We're not going to answer it today. You're going to sit a week. Next week is the 26th. I think we can still do class. I'm, I think I'm still around. Anyway, um, so we need to understand, he says. It becomes a question. Why indeed did God vary the method of creating man's body from that of other bodies? Right? Why is it that everything else is created one click? One click creation. Click here and you have an animal, a live animal. With human being, it's two steps. Click here for a body, click here for a soul. Why two steps? Why a two step 
authentication and verification process. Why the two, why two steps? And it would see, it's not, the question is not just why is it different, Manashtana, why is it different? The question is, it seems like it's worse by human beings. It would seem, second line at the end of the line, it would seem that this variation was not complementary to man. It seems very um, non-complementary. The other creatures formed from the earth as they were never appeared in the crudeness of lifeless cloths. No other form of life appeared dead, but instantly they were animated bodies. They were alive right away. The animals were alive. The plants were alive. The trees were alive. The moment they existed, they were alive. But man appeared at first in the base, of, in the base form of inner dust, a clod of earth, a clump of clay. And only later did God breathe into him the breath of life, even if it's one moment later. The question is, this does not seem to be complementary. This seems to be degrading. Our original state, the first origins of our being, is dead, earth, a clod. And nevertheless, we have the chutzpah to say that man is the choice of creatures, the central creature of all creation. How is it possible? How does that line up? How does it line up? How, we, how does the math work? We're saying, we started this chapter by saying that human beings are Bechir and Avrayim, the choice of all creations. Then we said that, you know, all beings, all creations, even heavenly beings have body and soul. But there's a difference, we just said, between the, the body and soul of the human being and the body and soul of all other creatures. Because body and soul of all other creatures, they simultaneously merge. They merge simultaneously. Body and soul, it's like they hurtle together, Boom, and they form life. But with the human being, first came a body. And only then came a soul. And the question is, two questions. I'm going to split into two questions. Number one, Manashtana. Why is it different? Why the difference? And number two, it does not seem to be nice. It does not seem to be complimentary. It does not seem to be advantageous to have started as a lifeless clod. How then can we say that not only are we different, certainly we're different, we're finding out in the method of creation, but that we have a superiority over all other beings? I would say that the being that had a soul from the get-go is superior than the being that was dead at the get-go and only later got a soul. Right? Doesn't that make sense? I think so. Anyway, that's what he thinks also. So this is a classic question of Kabbalah. We're going to answer it next week. Please, is everyone here next week? Anyone here next week? Yes? Yes? Maybe? All right. Not putting anyone on the spot. Not putting anyone on the spot other than you, Ed. No one else? Nice. Okay, good. All right. So please, God, we will be back next week to answer the question. What is the meaning behind... What is the meaning behind the distinction in creation with the human being. Why are human beings created first earth and only then soul, whereas everything else created body and soul together? What does it mean for us? And how does it point to the special quality of the human being? I see here some... I see here some comments. I see some were answered. Um... Marsha, thank you very much for sharing some personal um, interaction with Rabbi Feller. He is tremendous. And Rabbi Friedman. Wow, what a combo, right? Rabbi Friedman and Rabbi Feller. 
Woo! Minnesota was right. It might be a cold place, but man, rocking it. Chomer Tzura. Soul is neither Chomer or Tzura. Oh, out of town. Thank you, Rabbi. Amazing. Okay, amazing. Good, good, good. All right, awesome. Good stuff. So what's the message of today? So what's the, what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? Here's a few takeaways. Number one, don't just look at yourself as a Chomer. You're not just substance. You have a tsura, you have a form. And even though we live in a world where chomer sometimes is the dominant element where we see things and they, everything looks physical and then we don't even think about the spiritual sometimes, let's remember that everything has a purpose. Everything has a purpose. right? A person is not just a body. A person has a story. Every person, every human being has a story. Everyone has a narrative. Everyone has where they came from and where they're going and who they are and what they're about. Everyone has a feelings and personality and everyone has... There's so much depth behind them. Let's not just look at, at physical things. Everything in this world, everything in this beautiful world that Hashem made has a purpose. Let's not destroy it. Let's not take it for granted. Let's not be careless about it. I was always told by, by my elders that when you come into a place as a guest, you always leave it better than you found it. You ever hear that? That's what I was told. You come into a place, right? You visit someone's house, whatever it is, as a guest, you leave, make, it, make sure it's nice to them when you got in. Halavai, we should all say the same thing about life itself. We come into this world. How are we leaving it nicer than when, than when we came in? If, we've been, if we had been thinking this for the last 5,782 years, Mashiach would already be here. The problem is we're not always aware of it because instead we're thinking, you know, how, what can I get from this place? How can I, you know, what can I take from it? Let's think less about taking and more about giving. How can we make this place a better place? At the end of the day... God put us here to transform this world into a home for him. Or using the language of Kabbalah, it's to make this world truly, I mean, it already is, but to make it even more of a beautiful garden. Imagine if somebody, imagine if the king, we don't have kings, but imagine if the king would tell you, hey, listen, I have a job for you. I have this beautiful land, potentially beautiful land, but there's some weeds. I want you to take this land and make it, Bloom, make a blossom, make it gorgeous. And use your own creativity. Flowers and trees and fruit and vegetables. Like make it a garden, make it beautiful. That would be quite the mission. That would be amazing. Imagine if you would then go into that space and, 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 and pave it and burn it and graffiti, make it ugly. It would be, like, who would do that? The king, the king put you here and gave you the space gave you land to make it beautiful and you're destroying it, right? Doesn't seem nice. So we have to remember that that's, that's us. That's our story. God is putting us here to make this world a better place, to make this world into a garden. In fact, the Rebbe's first discourse in 1951 when he assumed the leadership of the Chabad movement was a discourse called Basi Lagani Echei which is I've come into my garden. God says, I've come into my garden. And the message for us is God wants this world to be a garden that he can come into. That's literally our job. You can call it Tikkun Olam. You can call it Mashiach. Whatever you want to call it. It's the same thing. Gardening. Whatever. Go whatever you want. It's the same thing. It's making this world into a beautiful place. So let's always remember that behind the Chomer is a Tzura. Behind the physical is a purpose, is a spirit. It's a... 
There's a higher dimension, and our job is to bring that out, to cultivate that. Along the way, we're trying to figure out what it is about the human being that makes us unique. Why, why do we first begin as a clod of earth, a lump of earth, and then only get a soul? And that we're going to explore next week. All right, great to see everyone. Um, it is good to see you all. A, quick, a few quick announcements. Number one, Rosh Chodesh Society tomorrow night. We have an amazing Rosh Chodesh Society class taught by Leah. Leah will be teaching tomorrow's class for women only. It is a class called Soul Food, all about the spirit and body of kosher. So practical guidance on kosher as well as some spiritual components to kosher. As an additional bonus, we have with us live and in studio, in studio, live and in, in, in this Jeff's place right here, we have a, an Instagram food influencer. Is that the right term? I don't know. Maybe. An Instagram food influencer. But she doesn't just influence food. She actually cooks the food. I'm just saying, whatever. It's like she's making food and, and displays food beautifully. Her name is Sarah G., and I don't remember her Instagram handle, but I put it in an email that I sent out last week to some that have been part of RCS in the past. Anyway, you definitely want to join. You can join in person or you can join online. We have a simultaneous uh, Zoom feed as well, so you can check it out. You won't be able to taste the food online, but you can certainly see the method and see how it's done and see how it's also displayed because part of food, of course, is the visual, how it looks, how it's laid out. Yesterday. Huh? Yesterday, Yesterday yeah. Wow. Yesterday's Kiddush. Wow. Amazing. All, all about the presentation, right? All about the presentation. Yeah. Um, anyway, not all, but a big piece of it. So join us tomorrow, uh, tomorrow night for that. It's Monday night. Tuesday night is the Kabbalah of the Matrix online, third out of three. And the Matrix actually comes out. The new movie comes out on Wednesday, so mm -hmm. we get in right before. By the way, this week's class, Kabbalah of the Matrix, is absolutely going to be on fire. It's going to be unbelievable. And that's all I'll say. You have to join to find out more. And then this Saturday night... In person, again, right here in Jeff's place, we have our, what's become almost an annual tradition now, Chinese dinner and a movie. So we're going to be eating a Chinese dinner, all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet, followed by a, the feature film or the film The Frisco Kid. Classic Jewish humor film about a rabbi who goes west and encounters some adversity along the way. Hijinks ensues. I haven't actually watched it, but that's my understanding of the plot. All right, it's great to see you all. Yaakov and Tim and David and Linda and Tony and Donna and Mariana and Toba and Adam and Darren and Richard. It's great to see you all. Have a wonderful day. Shavua Tov. We'll see you guys soon. Thank you very much. My Good pleasure. Day, my pleasure. And Hatzlacha. Hatzlacha with, uh, with the country. Everything should work out well. Thank you. Thank you very much. We, we need angels. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we need angels, but we can, we can also create angels. Yes, I, I have a last question. Yes. I don't know if it's okay to ask. Sure. It's about the angels that yeah. they didn't understand. Because they come to, to the world with a purpose. On the, on the way to that purpose, could they make things like, like not so right like our eyes? Oh, like the eyes. Um... So it's interesting. It's interesting. Do angels have free choice? Is that kind of the question? Can angels mess things yes. up? So there are some angels that do not have free choice. And I would say most angels are messengers and don't have the ability to choose. But some angels do have, especially when they assume 
physical form, when they come down here, there's more room for error. Like I mentioned, the two angels that came down to try to fix the world, and they made it much worse. So when, when angels come in our space, they can become corrupt. They, they, can, they can turn to, to a bad way. But above, typically the angels don't have choice, although there's an exception to that as well. But it's, it's, very, it's a very complicated topic when it comes to angels because there's a lot of sources, but it's kind of hard to understand because it's all written in language that we can speak about. But we have to know that even as we speak about it, it's not literally those ideas. It's more of a, you know, an example or a metaphor, not the literal understanding. So it becomes very difficult to really hone in on it. Like, what is an angel? Like, show me an angel. It's not going to, it's a little bit different. But can we have the influence in our lives? Are there guardian angels? The Rebbe spoke about guardian angels. The Rebbe said to a mother who was very anxious about her child. She was very, like, just anxious, an anxious parent, always worried about her child getting hurt. The Rebbe said, don't worry. There are angels helping, uh, protecting your child. If you are not always watching, the angel will watch. Don't. So the Rebbe told, like... And I, it wasn't just to make her feel better. This, if the Rebbe said it, it's, it's, there's, there's truth to it. So there are angels. There are angels that, um, that, are, that are protective angels. So please, God, we need, we need more angels. I will tell you, though, the, um, and I always share this Friday nights when we sing the Shalom Aleichem. Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Asharis. We sing to the angels. So I always make a point to mention this, that there are angels that we cannot see but that we believe are around us, walking us home Friday night and, and in our home, welcoming the Shabbat with us. But then there are the other angels of flesh and blood that are around the table, our loved ones. So it's good to, ha it's good to know and to have the, the spiritual angels, but it's also good to know that we have physical angels in our lives and to be that angel for someone else, to be a physical, a literal angel for someone else, to help someone else out. And um, there's a I get the chills. There's a story of the, I think the Baal Shem Tov. Somebody once came to him and said, I want to see angels. I want to see an angel. Can you help me see an angel? He said, sure. Passover was approaching. He said, take money, clothes, toys, take stuff and go over to this house. To this house and drop it off. He does it. Comes back, didn't see an angel. Drop it off in the port. Just leave it in the front, front of the house. Okay. So, so he says, uh, he comes back, says, I didn't see angels. He says, okay, so tr do it again. A few months later, do it again, do it again. Third or fourth time, he's outside the door, and he hears before another holiday, like before each holiday he was doing this, based on the Bashemtos telling him that you'll see an angel, and he hears from behind the door the kids talking to themselves, saying, I wonder if God is going to send an angel again this, this holiday with the stuff that we need for the holiday, with the money and the toys and the food. And he realized that he did see an angel, and he was the angel. Anyway, it's a, I, I'm, I'm like, it's a, it's a big story that I made very, very short. Beautiful but it's, story, beautiful. But it's, it just reminds us that, yes, there are angels, yeah. and, and we believe in that, but we can also be, in our own lives, angels for others. All right, I'm going to sign yeah. off. We'll see you guys. Shavua Tov. Thank you very much. Lots of love to everybody. Shavua. We'll see you. Take care. Shavua Tov. Shavua Tov. Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure, pleasure.